Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. So if you've been with us through um, our last few months of teaching, we've been pursuing what it means for Cornerstone to move from being a church that has the mindset of being a, a church plant to being a church that's rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, um, moving away from, uh, from uh, cultural definitions and thoughts about what it means to be a church, and moving back to God's definitions of, of what it means to be a church. Um, as we have walked through this thing together a couple weeks ago, uh, I announced to you folks that we're going to be um, we're going to be moving as a body toward being covenant members together, um, in stepping into a true commitment together as a local body of Christ around four things that we're asking folks to commit to as being part of Cornerstone. Um, the first one being personal spiritual intimacy with Christ, which last week I taught about from Philippians 3, talking about um, the, the road to intimacy and knowing God, to experientially knowing God, is by embracing suffering. Um, today we're going to talk about community, which is the second thing we're asking people to commit to. Uh, the third thing will be stewardship. We'll be teaching on that next week. And the fourth thing will be ministry, service, spiritual gifts, um, growing and edifying the body of Christ and the world around us together. So, like I said, today we're going to be talking about community. Now, today's message, like I said last week, is linked to last week's message. Um, these two particularly go hand in hand. Uh, the way that you and I have been made and wired, the way that we have been spiritually grafted into the body of Christ, has everything to do with what it means to know Christ. Knowing Christ individually speaks deeply to knowing Christ as a community. Knowing Christ as a community has everything to do with knowing Christ um, in, individually. It's, it's this symbiotic relationship that actually Barry spoke to during, uh, during the um, politics moment this morning. You know, there's this thing where it's all about the masses or it's all about the individual. Humans want to go one of these two directions and sort of stay there. We do this with politics. We do this with economics. We do this with just about everything. We do this with our social structures. Um, it, it's, it's this evidence. God does not desire us to live in either one of these places, places. He desires us to live in the third place that is Jesus. So it's not even about, like, having striking a healthy balance between these two places. No, you'll never balance these two places. There is no balance. Jesus doesn't want to be balanced in your life. Jesus wants to be your life. Huge difference. Huge difference. So today we're going to talk about community together. Now, community is a buzzword in the church, and uh, um, it, it has generally, scripturally, become the word that we use for the old school word fellowship, right? Fellowship, community. Uh, personally, I like the word community, so um, we're, we're going, to keep it, going to keep it around. Um, for a while anyway, until we completely burn it out. If you look at the word community and you parse it, what you have is common, whoa, unity, right? These two things break themselves down to common unity. So that's interesting, right? We think of community, right, as a diversity of people that sort of comes together in, in a local region or in a, in a, in a group, um, but there is certainly a oneness principle that is in place to hold things in common. That's not coming against diversity. It is to say that when God brings us together, there is a unifying concept to it. When humans unify, there will always be a diversity to it. There has to be. When God unifies, there's always a common unifying point to it. What is that unifying point? 
That's right, himself. He's the unifying point. We try and create other unifying points. We try and unify around love. We try and unify around peace. We try and unify around skin color. We try and unify around socioeconomic structures. We try and unify around class. We try and unify around just about everything other than Christ. So when Jesus brings us together, it is not unity for the sake of unity. This is not a bunch of people feeling good about each other and themselves all together at the same time. That's not God's concept of unity. I mean, how many of you know that when you come to Christ, the troubles in your life increase, don't decrease, right? It's, it's interesting um, because this is how much God loves us. He, he grows us. Troubles in God's mind aren't troubles. Troubles are opportunities to love us more. And so when we come together to talk about community today, it's important for you right off the get-go to realize this assumption that I'm going to be speaking from. This is going to be my posture, and if we don't have the same posture, then what I'm going to say isn't going to make sense to you, which is this, that this is all about Jesus, that any unity community that we have together is about Christ at its core. All right, that's the assumption. Now, let's pray, and then we'll move into our text. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we can be together. God, we want to be uh, the people of God together, like you have called us to be. We want to know you, to experience you, to be about you and about your kingdom. So today, God, teach us. Teach us what it means to be your people. Teach us what it means to know you. Teach us what it means to be the people of God together, people who live in community. But God, keep us from understanding this wrongly. Keep us from thinking that this is somehow about us because this is about you and that's not something that we actually understand. Our flesh does not give itself to that kind of thinking. So we ask you to renew our minds in Christ. We ask you to speak to us new ways of thinking and of being together. Thank you for the love of Jesus that binds us together. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So I had this grand aspiration for this morning's teaching. I was going to do an entire biblical survey on the concept of community from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And we were going to walk through this, uh, the, the whole Bible, looking at these different various ways of looking at community from the big 30,000-foot view, you know, particularly the nation of Israel and Jesus and the church and what it means for God to choose a people of his own. I made it to Genesis 11. <laughs> um, so uh, I said, I just, I, I, I can't, it, it would be impossible unless you were able to get inside my head to explain to you how much Genesis 1, chapter 1 to chapter 11, it means to me. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's everything. John Stott once said, you could take the entire Bible and make it Genesis 1 to 11 and Revelation 21 and 22, and you'd be fine. Because everything else that you find, all the principles and ideas that humanity engages in the rest of the scriptures, from Genesis 12 all the way through Revelation 20, is in some strange way connected back to these first 11 chapters. We tend to think about these first 11 chapters in very romantic fashions. Um, and what I hope to do for us today is to de-romanticize these things by helping us to see what happens when humans create community on their own. Because that's what we see in Genesis 1-11. to So let's start with community that's not screwed up, okay? Which is a good place to start. Genesis 1 in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So right off the get-go, right, if you've studied the Bible for very long, you know that when you see the words in the beginning, you see those words somewhere else. It's in the book of John, chapter 1. book of John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. John 1 goes on to tell you that the Word that John's talking about is Jesus. And John is drawing a direct parallel to Genesis 1.1. You can find just about every word and concept in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It was written by Jewish people from Jewish history with Jewish traditions. All right, you're going to see, we're going to see another one when we get to chapter 4. It's great stuff. Anyway, like I said, I get so excited about Genesis 1-11. to The amount of rabbit trails we're going to go on today is probably through the roof, and I haven't even thought of them yet. Um, John 1, in the beginning was the Word. So there's Jesus, right, drawing a direct, par- direct parallel here to Genesis 1. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And in verse 2, what's hovering over this, the face of the waters? The Holy Spirit is. Right off the get-go, you've got the Trinity. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, John 1, in the beginning was what? Was the Trinity. Was God with himself. And everything at that point was just fine. If God had chosen to be with himself for the remainder of all the rest of time, even though time hadn't been invented yet, it would have been awesome. And everything would have been just perfect. But God, in his grace and his goodness and his plans for us, he chooses to create us. He chooses to create humans. Look at verse 26. God makes all of these things through the first six days of creation, the first five days of creation. They're getting more and more complex as he goes. Right? He, he begins, he, he's, he's making all this great stuff, the earth and the seas and the land. Then he makes vegetation. And vegetation is actually the first type of life that he makes, physical life. Right? And then he begins to make things more complex too. He makes the sun, the moon, and the stars. Then he makes animals. And with, with animals, he makes emotional life. Right? Animals can feel. Animals can express emotion. It's interesting. I don't think they have souls. I don't think they live forever. But animals can certainly feel. That's interesting. Physical life with vegetation, emotional life with animal kingdom, and then we get to uh, chapter 1, verse 26, when God decides to, in verse, on the sixth day, let us make man in our image. Notice the us. He's including the wholeness of himself. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He makes physical life, he makes emotional life, and with Adam and Eve, he makes spiritual life because he breathes into them the breath of life and man becomes a living creature. And God makes this beautiful garden in the land of Eden, and he puts the man and the woman there. He creates Adam, and then he puts Adam to sleep, and he takes a rib out of Adam, and he forms Eve out of this rib, and he puts them together in the garden. Right? How many days of creation are there? Six. And on the seventh day, rest. That's right. That's right. One thing that you never see is the seventh day come to an end. The Garden of Eden experience is one big seventh day. It's one big point in time of rest. God makes Adam and Eve. He puts them into the Garden of Eden on the seventh day, and the seventh day continues. And they together live in the fulfillment and enjoyment that is one another. That's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. 
Apparently, God and Adam and Eve had this rhythm together. God would come down. They would walk together in the cool of the evening. Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. Adam and Eve were husband and wife. Adam and Eve were united together. They were taking care of the garden, right? They were, they were engaging in conversation with the animals. They were having perfect dominion over everything that was there, right? In Eden, what we see is this. The center of Eden is the mutual glory of the Godhead. The point of all of this in the Garden of Eden was fulfillment. Right? The purpose of community was for intimacy. They were naked and not ashamed. Fully known, fully vulnerable, transparent. Right? Community was for intimacy. And God was with them. And all was well. Again, Eden could have continued forever. Eden could have gone on and on and on. That was God's plan, right? Was that this is me with my creatures enjoying, I enjoying them, them enjoying me, them enjoying one another, them being together, them being with me, all together, all around this mutual glory of the Godhead who actually made all this stuff and who actually engaged all these relationships and started all of these things. And the whole point was fulfillment. Right? If you would have stopped the Bible at chapter 2, verse 25, that, that's it. Everything's good. And it just would have continued like that. But it didn't. But it didn't. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Key phrase, you will be like God. Think about the fall of Lucifer. What did Satan say to himself? What did Lucifer say to himself? When he fell from heaven, did he say, I want to dethrone God and take his throne? No. What did he say? I want to be like the Most High. He didn't say, I want to replace the Most High. God has his mountain. I want my mountain. God has his throne. I want my throne. Right? Satan comes at Eve with the exact same deception that he himself bought when he fell. You won't, you won't die. God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can have what even I never had. God's given you the opportunity. You can be like him. You can know good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to, be, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And what did they do? They covered themselves. Vulnerability, transparency, it goes away. The first feeling that humans felt after the fall was shame. 
right? The last verse of chapter 24, I'm sorry, of, verse, of chapter 2, verse 25, they were both naked and what? Not ashamed. And the first thing that they feel is shame. Oh my gosh, I don't have any clothes on. I have to cover myself. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What's this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, Adam and Eve are living in this perfect community, this perfect relationship, this completely fulfilled thing with God at the center, with all three parts of God at the center, enjoying life and being fulfilled. Why? For the sake of fulfillment. There were no goals to accomplish. There was nothing to get done. God gave them work because work is good. And they worked together in the garden. Right? God gave them one another because one another were good. And they had deep intimacy together. But when the fall happened, things shifted. The center at the fall was humanistic deception. You can be like God. You can be like God. The point at the fall was to be like God. That sounds great. Yeah, I want to be like God, knowing what he knows. Community, and this is interesting, community was the casualty. Community was the casualty in the fall. It was community that was broken. I mean, think about how awesome God is in this in this passage. What has God said to Adam and Eve? What will happen when they eat the tree? What did God say? You'll die. When you eat that tree, you will die. Do they die? Do they? No. No, they don't die. God didn't say, when you eat the fruit of that tree, we're not going to be able to experience community together anymore. When, when you eat of that tree, you're going to feel this, 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 and this. No, God says, when you eat of that tree, you're going to die. But that's not what happens. In, in the fall, God loved them. In the fall, God loved them. God did not do what he said that he would do. Now, we know that spiritual death entered the world at this point. But I think that when God said die initially, he meant die. He, he meant, boom, dead. X is on the eyes, you're out. You know, that's it. God doesn't do that here. God extends their life beyond the judgment that he pronounced, their physical life. And then he does what? He also extends their spiritual life as well. Adam and Eve, I mean, they were covered, right? Fig leaves shrivel up and die. What does God do? God immediately kills an animal. Blood is shed. What does he do with the carcass, with the skin of the bloody animal? 
right? He, he makes clothes. What does he do? He covers their shame with what? Death. And by death, their shame is covered. God loves them so deeply, but community is broken. And you can see it right away, can't you? Why did you do this? Why did you eat this? She gave it to me. The first thing Adam says, you gave me a wife. And she gave it to me, so I I ate it. And then God looks at her. Why, Why did you eat it? I was deceived. Now, I wasn't in the garden, but I'm telling you, this has to be what happened. God's looking at Adam and says, this is all my sanctified imagination, God's looking at Adam and says, why did you eat this fruit? Adam says, she told me to. He looks at her and says, why did you eat this fruit? And he, she says, because I was deceived. And he turned back and glared at Adam. Did you hear what she said? Rabbit trail number one. In the scriptures, whose job is it to make sure that their wife stays not deceived? Their husband's. It's a husband's job to make sure that his wife walks in truth. That's what it means in Galatians or uh, Ephesians 5, for a man to wash his wife with the word. It means that you keep her clean from deception. The scriptures make it very clear. Women are prone to deception. Men are prone to accusation. And we care for one another in a marriage relationship by keeping one another clean of those things. The enemy deceives her, getting her to believe things that are not true. The enemy accuses him, getting her to, him to believe things that are not true. All right? So, good rabbit trail. All right. The story continues, and they are cursed, right? Isn't that what happens? The man and the woman get cursed, right? Wrong. God never curses Adam and never curses Eve. God curses the snake, and God curses the land. Because of God's curse on the serpent, look at it, verse 14, because you've done this curse to you above all livestock, and then verse 15, I will put hatred between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The curse of the serpent has direct ramifications on Eve. Verse 17, Because you've listened to your wife and eaten the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. God curses the land. And then because of the curse on the land, it has direct ramifications on who Adam is. And then God says, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Just understand that that's a qualification, that phrase there. When God says he has become like one of us, Adam and Eve did not turn into little gods when they ate this fruit. They became like God in their knowledge of good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. Is there any mention of Eve in these statements? No. Who is he going after? Who is he pointing to in this? He's pointing at him, at Adam. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword, and he turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I'm going to step into storytelling mode a bit here as we get, go through the next five chapters, right? And so what happens is Adam and Eve are cast from the garden, and they have a family. 
Remember last week we were talking about knowing experientially? We're talking about how the word gnosko in the New Testament links up to the concept for sex in the Old Testament. Well, chapter 4, verse 1, what happens? Adam knows his wife, and she conceives, and she has two kids, and their names are Cain and Abel. And Cain is a farmer, and Abel tends to the livestock, and God has set up a sacrificial system of some kind or another that we don't have a lot of information about. Um, but there were clearly a time to bring sacrifice. And when you brought sacrifice, you were to kill an animal, you were to bring it and burn it on an altar. And Abel did that, and God was pleased with his sacrifice. Cain did not listen to what God said. Cain did not go to his brother to get an animal to kill. Cain instead brought some of the best stuff that he grew. He put that on an altar, and he burned that. And God was very displeased with his sacrifice. As a result of this, Cain gets very, very angry with Abel, so much so that Cain murders Abel. And the first sin we see post-garden is the destruction of the image of God, which is what murder is. Murder is a bad crime. We all get that, but we don't define it rightly. I mean, murder is the taking of another person's life, but why is that so bad? That's so bad because you are killing someone that wears God's image. So the image of God is what is falling when a human falls. And this concept of brotherhood that we think of, and rightly so, in very, very deep, intimate ways, is come against very, very directly in this. The center of what happens with the brothers is human pride. Cain's pride takes over. The point, in Cain's mind, was to be better. To compete. As a result of what happens, community was murdered. And God judges. God judges Cain. So here we have another form of community, right? Brotherhood, brothers together. Where pride gets in between them, pride causes the destruction of the image of God in one. Abel is buried in the ground secretly, and God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother Abel? Famous quote, am I my brother's keeper? And God in so many words says yes, because your brother's blood, it's screaming to me from the land. Like, I I can hear it crying out. This is one of those places that, like, begins to build a second rabbit trail. This is one of those places that begins to build a theology of land for us. Like, the land is alive, it's real. It feels. It moves. It, it, it cries out. Right? In this case, Abel's blood is crying out from the land. We know right now that creation is consistently groaning in its spirits for the sons of God to be revealed. Like God speaks to us through the land. You can't curse something that's dead. God curses the land. Right? And the land continues to walk out its curses, e- even today. Another good rabbit trail. All right. After, after Cain and Abel, third rabbit trail, look at the last verse of chapter 26, Acts 4.26. This is after a genealogy of sorts about who has wives and children and these different things. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, why does the writer of Genesis include that? 
And where have you heard that before? Who else says that besides John Mark McMillan and the song that we sing, Whosoever Calls? Paul says that, right? Paul preaches that. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Great preaching, Paul. No, it's not. It's great quoting of Scripture. We just don't think of it. The whole Bible is tied together. It all is together. You've got to get into your Old Testament. You've got to get into your Old Testament. Hear me. Get into the Old Testament, and the New Testament will make more sense to you. It will become alive. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, and we think, yeah, people were worshiping God. The writer of Genesis does not mean for this to be a positive statement. This is a bummer. Like, man, sin really did have its way. People didn't have to call upon the name of the Lord before that. There was no calling upon the Lord in the Garden of Eden. He was right there. There was no separation. There was no calling to be had. Every, every, and, and that was Adam and the family's reality, I think. Like when, when Eve a promise from God that a Redeemer is coming, I'm thinking, well, then that means I'm going to have a son that's going to make all this better. And she does. It's just a long, long, long time later. So, people, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord, right? And between chapters 5 and, and chapter 4 and chapter 6, there's no possible way to know how much time exists in that space. I mean, there is an, it could have been thousands, on thousands of years that happens between chapter 4 and, and chapter 6. Any good scholar and good commentary you read will tell you that the commentary or that the genealogy in chapter five is for the purpose of us knowing who begat who, not so that we know timelines. All right, there, there's uh, I can't have time for that rabbit trail. Okay, but it's a great rabbit trail. Could, what if people could go to the moon between chapter four and chapter six? Like, what if they invented great big construction instruments and built a civilization? I mean, we have no idea what the world was like before the flood. None. We don't know how much time happened. We don't know how. We always think, like, me caveman. You know, me go kill. This is what must have been like. No, I don't think so. I mean, these people can speak in complete sentences. Very impressive. Very impressive stuff. You know? Like, wow. Wow, I wonder where we got those notions from. Well, uh, it's just, yeah, okay. You see, uh, see what I'm talking about. All right. The flood happens next. The flood happens next. How do we get to this point? They call upon the name of the Lord. Now, this is still, while it's not premium and an optimum, that's good. We want people calling on the name of the Lord, right? Engaging God. And then you get to chapter 6, which opens with one of the most mystical, crazy things happening, with angels having sex with humans and giants running around, making problems for everyone, and, and all of these demons coming down from heaven. What? Insane. And then out of nowhere we find out that humanity has literally gone to hell in a handbasket. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Now remember, land is alive when God says that the earth was corrupt, he is talking about land. The land was corrupt. 
and the land was filled with violence. And that's the reference to humans on the land. God is looking down at his creation, all of it, and going, it's gone as bad as it can go. Notice the point of corruption, or the way that corruption is described, is in violence. When the earth is filled with violence, corruption is at its peak. Hmm, interesting. And God saw the earth, and behold, at verse 12, and behold, it was corrupt, for all earth, all flesh, had corrupted their way on the earth. And so God comes to Noah, and he tells Noah, I want you to build an ark. And it has not rained up until this point. Noah, build an ark. Notice that he never says that he's going to save Noah until Noah completes the obedient task of building the ark, which I just find fascinating. Noah, I want you to build something for me. What is it? It's an ark. What's an ark? I have no idea. Uh, or you don't need to know that. I just want you to build one for me. What's it look like? Well, it looks like this, 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 and this. Make it according to these dimensions. God, that's a big box. Yeah, exactly. That's an ark. Okay. God never tells him that it's going to float. Right? It's just a really, really big container. God never tells him it's going to be filled with anything. Not yet. He just says, build this. And Noah builds it. And then God covenants with him and says, now go get all the living things. Put them on the ark. Put yourselves on the ark. And Noah's got to be thinking, this is... Very interesting, because I'm going to send rain. God never defines rain for Noah. What's rain? It never gets an answer until rain starts falling from heaven. And then God says, now get on the ark. And they get on the ark, and suddenly everything becomes very, very clear. And all of humanity is destroyed. I skipped over the sad part, but we've got to go to it. Look at verse 6. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 6. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Notice he doesn't say, I will blot out man except for one family, and then I'll start over with them. At this point, God is just simply feeling the depth of the brokenness that sin has brought to his creation. And it is better for this not to exist than for this to exist like this. And then he sees Noah. And there is grace. What a good God. What a, what a, what a great, great God. But he does follow through. And except for Noah and his family, all living things are killed. Except for Noah and his family and the animals that were on that ark, all living things are killed. You ever think it's weird that we decorate babies' nurseries with Noah's Ark? <laughs> I want to put, like, some corpses on the water, you know, <laughs> or something like that. I, think, I know, it's, it's like, this is, that's, that's, right. I told you, this, the whole point is to de-romanticize, right? Um, like the flood, what a horrible, horrible thing. At the center of the flood is human corruption. Which is described and marked out for us by violence. The point of the flood is to start over, which is what God gets to in his grace. Initially, it's I'm going to kill everything. I'm just going to do away with it all. But then he sees Noah, and the plans shift. I'm going to start over. I'm going to start over with you and your family. We're going to start this thing over. 
community was preserved. Because it was all going to be wiped out and gone. And the action of God in this time, God cleansed them. The core concept of corruption is dirt. It's dirtiness. Filth. God cleans things with the water of the flood. And boy, does he. And so the flood happens. And, uh, you know, you know the story. It's a famous story. The birds go out. He preserves his family. They come out of the ark. God gives them a rainbow. I'll never destroy the earth like this again. Next time it'll be by fire. We find out later. Um, But there's that beautiful remembrance when I put the bow in the sky. When I put the bow in the sky. When you see a rainbow, I mean, we, we love it. Isn't it just so beautiful? Do you realize that when God puts a rainbow in the sky, that he has every right to reach down, pick it up, and go like this with it? And that's what he does. God's weapons are weapons of beauty. Isn't that awesome? That is so cool. I don't know why. I just think that's the coolest thing, that God's weapons are weapons of beauty, that he takes this beautiful band of curved color, and he notches an arrow to it and slays his enemies. That's awesome. All right. So, humans come out, and they're supposed to fill the earth and multiply. They're supposed to to have lots of babies, and they're supposed to fill the earth and multiply. That's the whole point. And then we get to chapter 11. Go to chapter 11. Because they do begin to fill the earth, but they don't I'm sorry, they do begin to multiply, but they don't fill the earth. And this is a problem. This is a problem. Anybody ever call you a real Nimrod? What does it mean to be a Nimrod? You're an idiot, right? Well, Nimrod was a great king and made a really bad decision, right? Nimrod is the ruler of the land of Shinar. And if you just look back at chapter 10 at that genealogy, you can see he had a a massive empire uh, in verse 9. Uh, eight, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. By that, that's a man of war. Right? He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was what? Babel. Then Erach, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So then we get to chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there with Nimrod. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. When's the last time we see God come down? Yeah, Eden. Psalm 2 tells us that God watches kings and nations from the heavens and laughs. He chuckles to himself. So I'm just picturing God up in heaven watching Nimrod and his people build this. <laughs> Let's go down. Let's go down and see what they're up to. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, They are one people, and they all have one language. What are they living in? Unity. Right? One language, one people. This is how God describes them. 
They are a unified group, the Nimradians of Babel. Behold, they are one one people and one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God wanted all of his creation to be lived upon so that all of his creation, God had this plan in mind, all of his creation could therefore experience the redemption that would be the sons of God. But if the sons of God all stay together in one place with one language, there is no disbursement, then there is no disbursement of redemption. There is no one to steward things in the earth. And so God comes down and he causes their confusion, right? He confuses things. He breaks things. And people begin to go into their own separate places according to their languages. So at Babel, what we see is that the center is human glory. Let's build a tower to the sky. The point of the tower was to prove something. Community at the tower was perverted. Did they have a community together? Yes. But it was a perverted community, not what God designed. And God did what? He scattered them. When the fall happens, God gives them hope. When Cain and Abel happens, he gives Cain a mark to protect them, and there is hope. When the flood happens, there is hope. In the genealogies that we see listed, there is always hope. There's someone in there that follows God. When the story of the Tower of Babel ends, there is no hope offered. Unless you keep reading. And keep things connected. And in keeping things connected, what we see is Abram comes on the scene. And then things start to change. But before things start to change, I think that it would be good to... Just take a bit of time and to reflect on this. I mean, look at what we do when we create community. Look at what we do when we create our own way of doing things. Humans know that they have to live together. Like, we get it. We require one another. But when we do so without Christ, without God at the center, this is what we produce. All of our attempts at community and togetherness will go wrong. If we had time, we could go into it. History plays itself out in these four patterns. That when humans try and do it their way, we go one of these four ways. But our God, he was with them. He loved them. He judges us. His judgments are grace. God cleansed them. He scattered them. 
And when he gives his promise to Abram, who becomes Abraham, the center, as you can see here, right? We've got human, 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 human. The center of God's covenant to Abraham is God and the people. The point of God's covenant to Abraham is to bless all people. In God's covenant to Abraham, community is rescued. And in God's covenant to Abraham, that's exactly it, is that God covenants. And God never breaks a covenant. And what a good God who comes in to our brokenness time and time again with his love and his judgments and his cleansing and his ways and he is with us and he covenants with us and he never ever breaks his covenants. Community that will ever be community like God means it to be community is community that must be centered around Christ. Jesus is the point, right? I mean, it really is the whole idea. This is what makes last sermon, last week's sermon, not a sermon of despair. Is that God doesn't leave us alone. We do not suffer by ourselves. We do not walk through this life on our own. But something in our lives, something in our churches, something in our ways of thinking about God has gotten perverted because this is what we try and do. Right? If I'm standing here and this is my community, this is my small group, this is my people that I work with, right? these are the friends that I hang out with, whatever, uh, Noms, Dayelos, Kellyo, and here we are, we're having community. What we try and do is this. Oh, I'm a spiritual person. I worship and love Jesus. Jesus, teach me about you. Tell me who you are. Great, okay. I'm gonna take those things about what I've learned about Jesus and I'm gonna bring them over here and I'm gonna try and apply them to my situation. I'm gonna try and apply them to my community. So I'll apply it in this situation, this situation, this situation. The problem with this is that I am like this. This is me, deceived. This is me, proud. This is me, corrupt and violent. This is me seeking my own glory. I I can no sooner apply these things to my life in real ways than I can jump over the moon. The scriptures tell us that without Christ, it's not that we can only get a little stuff done. It's that we can do nothing. We can do nothing without Jesus. It is not enough for me to go to church over here or to live off of yesterday's manna, yesterday's food, and hear from Jesus, and then try and bring it over here and try and apply it to these relationships and these situations, it does not have a good ending. But it's okay that it doesn't have a good ending. Because God doesn't call us to this. God does not call us to these lives of having our spiritual lives over there and our real lives over here. Because if you were to name one of these situations real, that is more real than this. Jesus is what is real. And he doesn't ask me to come over here 
and sort of be with them for a little bit of time and then take that and apply it in places. When I try and do that, my fallenness takes over. My old man rears its ugly head. And here I am suddenly becoming a person of deception, pride, corruption, and my own vain glory. But it's okay. Because God doesn't ask us to do this. He doesn't say, come on, church, build yourselves well. Love each other better. Stop sinning. Be holy. Be righteous. You know what he has said? He has said, Jesus is holy. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is without sin. Jesus is perfect love. Be transformed by Jesus. And this is my reality. And I bring my reality and my reality with me. And Kelly has this reality. And Mike and Heather have this reality. And Barry and Olivia have this reality. And now our reality together is this reality. And now we can have community. Because I can only love Mike through Christ. I can only love Heather and Kelly and Barry and Olivia through Jesus. Honestly, look at what happens when we try and do it on our own. And my suffering becomes their suffering. Right? Their joy becomes my joy. Why? Because we're really great friends and we get each other? No. Because of Jesus. He's the point. He's the reason. This is the only way community can ever work. You know why your small groups just why our small groups just stink sometimes? Why it's just people going through the motions and you wonder what the heck's going on? It's because we're not bringing Christ to it. And look, we can get together and be like, hey, we're about Jesus until we're blue in the face. But unless our spirits and hearts are turned toward Christ together, unless we are living as people who have drank deeply of Jesus and who have eaten the bread of life and who are connected to the vine that is Christ and who have walked through the door that is Jesus to eternal life, unless we are personally possessing these things and bringing them to our communal relationships, then we can't, we can't, you can't just get together once a week and be like, we're going to be about God together now if you're not about God every other minute of the rest of your life. It just doesn't work. Jesus will not be packaged like that. In fact, he won't be packaged like anything. Try and package a lion and see what happens. Right? The painting that I put up on the screen here that you poor folks haven't seen, I apologize, is by Walter Brugel, right? a Dutch painter, back in the early 1500s. It's called Tower of Babel. And this is... Brugel's depiction of the Tower of Babel. What happened is Brugel took a trip to Rome. And while he was in Rome, he saw the sites, and one of the places that he saw was the Roman Colosseum. And he let his imagination wander back to what it must have been like at that point in time. But he also knew that Rome was what? Corrupt and violent, and that it fell horrifically. And so in his mind, the Tower of Babel really applied to the city of Rome. So he painted this depiction. And you can see it, right? And this is the early 1500s. They didn't have arches that looked like this in Europe, where he was from. Gothic was very big. It was a bit more pointy and elevated. Now, these are, these, are, these are curved Roman arches, right? It's set in the look of uh, the Roman Colosseum from many ways, especially in the fact, in the way that it's, that it's purposefully not finished, just like the Colosseum was ruined. And if you look at it now, it's purposefully not finished, purposefully. It looks like it's concentric circles circle sort of stacked on each other. 
But when you really look at it, what you can see is that it's actually a spiral. The problem, though, is what? What's wrong with this Tower of Babel? Why is it in trouble? It's leaning, right? The circles, the spirals, actually run parallel to the plane of the ground. I don't know if Brugel was a, a, a believer or not. I do think it's interesting that this house, this Tower of Babel, is built on the sand. Right? I mean, Jesus' stories are coming back in this. And if you look at it, you can see that actually, as much as it's being constructed, if you really stare at it, if you gaze at this thing for a while, Google it. Just put it on your screen and stare at it and look at it. The detail is insane in it. And what you see is that it's not being built. It's actually falling apart. Next slide, please, Dwayne. This is Van Gogh's Starry Night. Next slide. Uh, Should I go back the other way? There we go. Thank you. This is Van Gogh's Starry Night. Van Gogh used yellow to represent divine presence. It was all ins and outs with color and Van Gogh. Different things representing different things. Green was industry and work. Yellow was was the idea of divine presence. Van Gogh was a believer who eventually ended up uh, running away from his faith. He didn't go insane, like we oftentimes think that he does. Van Gogh lost it spiritually, like he just went into this pit of despair and depression. Where do you see yellow? Obviously in the sky. Obviously emanating from what? This is the starry night, but it clearly has a sun, which is interesting. Um, But where else do you see it? You see it in the houses. Where don't you see it? In the church. Next slide, please, Dwayne. This is Jim English's mock representation of Van Gogh's Starry Night. Right? And what you have is he actually calls it fast food Starry Night. It's a uh, commentary on uh, consumerism in America. You've got King Kong hanging on to the McChurch with the uh, McDonald's arches at its steeple. You've got uh, Bob's Big Boy and another McDonald's. And, uh, you know, things are just really interesting here. Notice that the divine presence is still in the sky. The yellow is still in the sky. And there's light coming out of the church, but it's fluorescent white. Next slide, please, Dwayne. When we try and do community on our own, it doesn't matter if we slap churchy labels and, and, and descriptions and commentary around it. It doesn't matter what kind of good curriculum we buy to study together. It doesn't matter um, what our language sounds like to each other. It doesn't matter if we can make the best meals in the world for each other when we get into big emergency situations. All that matters is, is Christ the center of the lives of the people who have gathered together? If the only time that we ever engage Jesus is when we decide to do church, then we are building a tower to nowhere. I think the Tower of Babel concept is deeply fitting for where we find ourselves as an American church. And it would be easy to despair in some of the places that we find ourselves as an American church. But we don't need to despair. You know why? Because this isn't the end of the story. Abraham's not even the end of the story. Because there's one that we haven't talked about yet, right? 
Jesus came to give us what you and I could not have on our own, which is full, complete access to God. And love, true love, toward one another. The center of Jesus was the mutual glory of the Godhead. Right? The Father seeks the glory of the Son, the Son seeks the glory of the Father. Both of those things come to the glory of the Holy Spirit. The point for Jesus and his coming was fulfillment. Jesus' prayer is that your joy might be in me and that your joy might be full. Fulfillment. And in that fulfillment, we can then live intimately together because community is, again, for intimacy with God and one another. And God in his grace has actually named that for us. He calls us sons. He calls us bride. He calls us body. He outlines it for us. He tells us who we are. He says, be this and be this together and you will love one another and you will love me. God in this, is again with us. And what Jesus gives to us in this is what we had in this. And we are restored. And we have life. And we can truly love one another. So community. People want, oftentimes from their churches, to have community programmed for them. Well, what programs for community do you have? Do you have small groups? Do you have a men's ministry? Do you have women's ministry? Do you have a kids' ministry? You know, do you have affinity groups? Do you have people that have fun together? Do you do this? Do you do that? Look, look me in the face. I've said a lot today. If you don't hear anything else I, I hear, say this. Community cannot be programmed. Whether or not community happens at Cornerstone has to do with you. It has to do with you and I. And whether or not Christ will be at the center of everything that we do. And everything that we're about. And everything that is in our hearts. If Christ is not at the center, then there cannot be community. There can be deception. There can be human glory. There can be corruption. There can be these other things that we've seen that humans get when they try and build it on their own. Or we can choose to bypass all that, go straight to the cross and say, this is what I will be about. And this is what we will be about. And then we can begin to learn what it means for us to be people who live in community together. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for who you are in our lives. Thank you for the truth of your word God, keep us from doing things our way. Keep us connected to you. Intimately connected to you. 
Thank you, God, for rescuing us. Thank you for the work of Christ that is among us. Root us in you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.